This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So when your hip won't let you hop, um, and again, uh, I have no disclosures relevant to this talk. I grew up in the area in San Jose, went to Bellarmine, um, and I've been at UCSF for a long time, it seems. Um, kind of goes by the adage of you can stay forever is one of the things a lot of the faculty here were medical students and the residents and have come back to join the faculty because we do love it here so much. Um, this is kind of, uh, I want to make sure everybody's aware of this, that there is a kind of a virtual center. This isn't an actual location, but it's more of a virtual hub uh, called the Hip Preservation Center. And so uh, myself and Dr. Vale on the arthroplasty side, as well as some of the other uh, orthopedic surgeons in the department are part of this hip preservation center. And um, it's been a really interesting uh, thing to be a part of. We kind of go at the hip from all ages and all types of diagnoses. Um, There's pediatrics uh, represented, primary care sports medicine, sports medicine, as well as the kind of the the end all, which would be a a replacement. Um, And so kind of collaborating with with this group, we do a lot of research together um, and have really uh, I think added to, to the UCSF experience for, for hips. Um, but this uh, virtual center actually spans multiple campuses. So UCSF orthopedics is now kind of spreading all over the Bay area. Uh, I personally practice in the city at San Francisco, as well as in Marin. Um, I have a clinic in San Rafael, and then we operate either at uh, Marin general or at UCSF Mount Zion. Um, but there's also uh, hip clinics in the East Bay, as well as down in the peninsula. So anywhere in the Bay Area, we have people that are willing and happy to see you uh, figure out what's going on with your hip. Um, so the goals of today's talk are to try and, uh, number one, kind of go over the anatomy of the hip joint at kind of a, a bird's eye view, um, and then break down some of the most common contributors to hip pain. And we'll go over this uh, acronym STAIRS. And then the best way to differentiate between these various types of hip pathologies um, and then hopefully you'll have a lot of time to answer as many questions you guys come up with. Um, I would say if you do come up with questions as things are going or as soon as they pop in your head, just kind of put it in the Q&A section. And even though I won't be able to get to it kind of on the fly, we'll, then we'll have kind of a queue of questions that we can go through and it'll be a little more, uh, probably flow a little bit better. Um, so what's hip? What, what is a hip? Um, if you live in San Francisco, some people would claim that these, these guys, these hipsters are, are what's hip. Uh, I'd say it probably depends a little bit. Um, but the hip, when people say their hip hurts and they come into my clinic, doesn't really tell me much because a lot of people think of the hip as a much different, it could be anywhere. Some people think of low back. Some people think lower down on the buttock area. Some people kind of grab the side of their pelvis up high and say that's their hip. Other people, it's more the kind of a little farther down. This is what classically an orthopedic surgeon would call the hip. Um, But, you know, the hip could be a variety of different locations to different people. But when an orthopedic surgeon is talking about a hip, we're talking about this top portion of the femur. So um, I think you guys can see my arrow, but the top portion of the femur kind of involving the femoral neck, this area called the inner trochanteric region, and then this upper part of the femur, that is technically what the hip is. Um, And then the hip joint is the ball and socket joint. So the ball here and the socket acetabulum, that's what a hip is to an orthopedic surgeon. The anatomy of the bones of the hip, you can think of, we we talked a little bit about the femur already. That's the, the thigh bone, the top of the femur being the hip. 
We can break it down as the ball or the femoral head. There's also a portion called the femoral neck right below it that attaches it to what we call the inner trochanteric region. And that inner trochanteric region is called that because it's between inter two trochanters. Trochanters are these bony prominences. This one on the top of the femur is called the greater trochanter because it's bigger. And the second one is called the lesser trochanter. Um, those are two really big and important attachments of two muscles that we'll talk about in a minute, um, but kind of two important landmarks on the hip bone. Now, the other side of the hip joint, the ball and the socket, the socket side is called the acetabulum. Um, that's a, a bony socket lined with cartilage. It's a part of your pelvis. Now, your pelvis is considered this whole section, two bones, uh, two anonymous bones, and then the sacrum. Um, each side of the pelvis can also be broken down into an ilium or the iliac wing. And that's kind of that higher bony part that you can feel pretty easily. Um, and then the ischium and the pubis are the two other parts of that anonymous bone. And then the sacrum behind it being the bottom of your spine. Um, so there's kind of bony, bony landmarks there. Now there's numerous muscles around the hip and we, we don't, even have close to enough time, even an hour and a half to even go through each of the muscles around the hip, but you can divide them into major groups by what they kind of functionally do. Um, and so the, uh, the, the first one I would say is the hip flexors. This would be like the psoas muscle, um, and, and the rectus femoris muscle, other ones being the hip abductors. Abduction is to pull the leg away from the body. Um, you can think of it like the leg being, an alien, like being abducted by aliens, it's getting pulled up and away, abducted, abducted. And then adductors, hip adductors are ones that pull your legs together. They pull them back to the midline. Um, and hamstrings are ones that more kind of extend the hip. You don't really think of hip extenders, but gluteus and the hamstrings can kind of pull the hip backwards. Okay. Now, there's two muscles that I would say coming away from this, everyone should know and are very key muscles. And those two also happen to be the ones that attach to those two bony prominences that we talked about. So the iliopsoas muscle is a combination of this iliacus muscle and the psoas muscle coming down into the iliopsoas tendon and attaching on that smaller to, uh, trochanter, the lesser trochanter. So that's that tiny bump on the inside. Um, and so that muscle, the iliopsoas, is really important. It's one of the strongest hip flexors. It pulls your hip up so you're knee towards your chest that's flexing your hip and so that iliopsoas muscle is one of the, the bigger stronger muscles in the body the other one that's very important is the gluteus medius muscle so this is looking at the the pelvis from the back and the green would be the gluteus medius muscle so even though the the gluteus maximus gets all the the kind of height that's kind of what your your butt shape is is the the gluteus maximus the medius is arguably the most important muscle around the hip um, it's a very strong muscle that helps hold the pelvis flat. And we'll talk about what can happen when that doesn't work very well a little bit later. But the gluteus medius is attaching onto the greater trochanter, so that bigger bony prominence on the top of the femur. Um, and it's helping abduct the hip. So, you know, alien abduction, pulling it to the side. But really, more importantly, it's helping hold the pelvis level when you're in single stance phase. So when you're standing on one foot, Rather than the, than the leg being pulled away, it's actually holding the pelvis up. So that's why it's such an important muscle. Now, a lot of people will undoubtedly have questions about some things like piriformis and some other muscles. We'll talk about those a little bit later, but there's a lot of smaller muscles around the hip 
um, that have varying importance. But these two, if you're going to come away with two muscles, the iliopsoas being a big hip flexor and the gluteus medius being a big hip abductor, those are the two I would argue most important. So um, other things around the hip anatomy-wise to be aware of that's going to help us discuss what can go wrong with different things would be cartilage. So cartilage is a tissue that covers all the kind of smooth surfaces between bones. Um, and there's hyaline cartilage or articular cartilage, joint cartilage that covers the end of the, the femoral head. Um, you can see it as this kind of white in this diagram. And then there's also cartilage on the other side in the socket. You can see it as the white on this part of the diagram. Now around the socket, there's also a, a different type of cartilage called fibrocartilage called the labrum. And that's kind of like a bumper around the edges of the hip that helps both with kind of a suction seal. It keeps the hip located, but also gives it a little bit of a cushion towards the edges as you get to the extremes of motion. Okay. Deepens the socket a little bit. That's called the labrum. Um, other things around the hip that are important would be things like ligaments and capsules. So the capsule is another word for just the surrounding of the ball and socket joint. It's really a, a confluence of different ligaments, ligaments being tissues that connect two bones together. So there's three major ligaments named for the places that they start from and go to. So iliofemoral ligament coming from the ilium going to the femur, ischiofemoral ligament coming from the ischium going to the femur, and pubofemoral ligament coming from the pubis going to the femur. And those kind of come around the hip joint and are very strong capsular tissues that hold the hip together and keep the ball from coming out of the socket. Um, and then, of course, there's vessels and nerves that go around the hip as well. So all these last few slides I've been showing you, every one of these little lines that defines a structure, something can go wrong with that structure and could cause a hip problem. Um, but we're not going to go over all of those today. Um, so we're going to come up with this. this uh, we, I didn't come up with this. I, I don't even actually know. I, I, Dr. Zhang, who's one of our hip arthroscopists, I, I took this from him, but I'm not sure if he was the originator of it. Or this idea of uh, stairs being the most common hip pathology. So we're going to go through each of these strains we we'll go about issues with the trochanter, um, arthritis, um, a big one for me, um, impingement, referred pain, and then SI joint pain, okay? So starting with strains, it's the most common injury around the hip or the pelvis. Um, it's a, what happens is the muscle tendon junction usually has a partial tearing. Um, it usually happens during an eccentric load, um, and it's usually an acute injury. So people know when it happened. I was playing soccer. I was running. I was going down the stairs. I fell when, you know, that's, it's a very acute issue. Usually it happens to muscles that are crossing more than one joint. So a lot of these muscles start on the pelvis, go past the hip, go past the knee or attach down at the knee. Those long distances across joints that can then stretch to their extremes on both, put the muscle at a little bit more of a, of a risk. So some of the muscles that this can happen to are things like your hamstring muscles, which start on the pelvis, go past the hip, and can attach down uh, below the knee. Um, other things uh, like the quadricep muscle, one of those four on the quadricep is the rectus femoris. Again, starts on the pelvis, goes past the hip, attaches to your pat uh, patella, and then down on the knee, so crossing two joints. Other muscles like the sartorius, the psoas is crossing your spine and going into the hip. So all these muscles that are Traveling over a long distance are the ones that are more prone to injury. Yeah, again, these are just some of the, the categories. Now, 
we said this is a muscle strain. One thing, just some nomenclature stuff to be aware of. So strain versus sprain. A strain is an injury to a muscle tendinous junction or in the muscle or in the tendon. A sprain is an injury to a ligament. So ligaments are two things that attach bones. There's no muscle tissue there. It's just an attachment from one bone to the other. Most common ligament sprain would be around your ankle. Um, so Dr. Chen can teach you all about that uh, in a couple of weeks. But strains being more muscle injuries or muscular tendinous injuries where the muscle is attaching or turning into a tendon. Um, the treatment for strains is, you know, everybody's had these, so most people are aware of this, but RICE is the acronym that we use a lot of times, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Um, you can add anti-inflammatory medications. So NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are a, a big class for orthopedic surgeons. These are things like Advil, Aleve, Motrin, Naproxen, Ibuprofen, Voltaren, Celebrex, Meloxicam, all these are kind of in the same class of anti-inflammatory medications um, that work really well for muscle and bone injuries. Um, gentle range of motion is important as well as stretching early, um, but important to give this time to rest. You don't want to get back to strengthening for a bit of time, and it depends on the, the degree of the injury, but usually somewhere in the one to four week range. So moving on from S to T and stairs, so trochanteric pain. Trochanteric pain is kind of classified or classically lateral pain. When I say lateral, that means outside of the hip. So if this is, if this was your hips on the outside of the hips, not in the front, not in the back on the outsides. Now there's four main things that can kind of happen that can cause trochanteric pain or lateral based pain. The first one would be what's called trochanteric bursitis. Now this is super common, um, especially in, in kind of middle-aged women uh, 40s to 70 year old, um, what happens is there's a bursa um, underneath the tendon that gets irritated and inflamed. So itis means inflammation. Bursa is a normal structure that happens underneath any kind of tendon that goes across a bony prominence. So you can see on the edge of your greater trochanter, there's a structure called a, your greater trochanteric bursa. Um, and that's a normally just a very thin kind of membrane. It's two tissues with a very thin fluid layer between it. What can happen is when it gets too tight or irritated, or you have trauma to it, or it's strained, um, it starts to get angry and inflamed. And then that bursa, bursa, the lining of it gets thicker and kind of painful and you get more fluid in it. And it's kind of this cycle of, of pain. So Typically, people present with pain with kind of everything. It's walking, it hurts. If you sleep or lie on that spot, it hurts. When you're getting up from a seated position, it starts to hurt. And the characteristic thing to this is that it's tender to touch. So if you push over that side of your hip where there's that bony prominence, it will hurt. That's kind of the classic thing for trochanteric bursitis. Now, it's important that this is differentiated from other things by it doesn't have any weakness. So you still have strength. It's just a little bit sore when you do activities. Okay. Um, the treatment for this, you're going to get used to a lot of this treatment algorithm because it's pretty similar for a lot of things, but stretching is kind of the biggest thing. When that IT band or this big um, muscle group that goes over the hip gets tight, you can imagine it's smashing on that bursa. And so in order to give it some relief, you have to stretch that muscle out so it's not so tight on there all the time. This will constantly recur in patients despite kind of aggressive treatment if you don't really stretch that muscle out. 
Um, we treat it a lot of times with anti-inflammatories. And one way that this one's treated a lot of times is with a cortisone injection, which is like an anti-inflammatory, just very local, very strong and focal. Um, in patients who are, this is refractory, and we're talking for over the course of um, often years, um, sometimes we will go in surgically and remove the bursa. Um, but the trouble with that is the bursa always comes back and sometimes it comes back with a vengeance. And so this isn't typically a, a treatment that's used very frequently. The other thing that can happen with the trochanter is, um, tendon tears. So, um, these can be acute or chronic. A lot of people have these, they don't even know about it. Um, again, older women are more, uh, prone to it, but the differentiator between this and trochanteric bursitis is they'll have pain when you push in the area, but they're also going to have weakness. Um, and the weakness is kind of a characteristic type of gait or walk that people get called a Trendelenburg gait. And so what happens is this is that gluteus medius muscle, that one that we said was, was really important um, to hold the pelvis flat and steady. And so what happens is when you step on that affected leg, the other hip falls out. So you can't hold your pelvis flat when you're standing on the side with the medius tear. Um, and so the hip kind of drops down. This lady, as she's walking, you'll notice that every time she's holding the cane wrong, first of all, but as she's stepping on the left foot, her right hip is falling out underneath her. So she steps on the left, right hip kind of drops down, steps on the left, right hip drops down. That's a classic Trendelenburg gait. Okay. Treatment for this can be conservative because again, a lot of people have this, they don't really know. Um, it's kind of like the rotator cuff of the, of the hip and that a lot of people get tears as you get older and you can still be very functional. Uh, it's really that pain that we're trying to treat. Um, if people are younger, more active, or it's a really big tear that's very functionally affected, then you can try to repair this muscle. Um, the other thing they have in the trochanter is this thing called uh, IT band syndrome. This is more in younger, very active patients. And this is kind of on the spectrum of bursitis, but it's just a different thing that's happening. The IT band, again, being that confluence of a bunch of tendons coming down from the pelvis down all the way to the knee, and you can get pain all the way down that IT band. Usually it's either down at the outside of the knee or up near that bony prominence, the greater trochanter. Um, but this is common in runners and bikers. It's just as that muscle's moving over the bone over and over and over again, it can get irritated and tight. And you can actually get a, 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 a like, you can feel a snap as you move your hip forward and back. Um, the treatment for this is really stretching again. This is one that's really uh, works well to do like foam rollers or mild fascial releases, um, things like that. Again, surgical treatment for this really uncommon, but would be something like going in and trying to lengthen that tendon, much preferable to lengthen the tendon on your own with stretching. Um, but sometimes there are conditions that that's just not working. So moving to the next one, this is, this is arguably my favorite, or not my favorite, but this is the one that, that I deal with every day, um, arthritis. So most common cause of disability in the U.S., quarter of the U.S. population has doctor-diagnosed arthritis, and a lot of people have limitations from this. This is a really expensive problem. There's lots of people trying to fix it, but we're not just there yet. What is arthritis? Arthritis just means, arthritis means inflammation of a joint. That's what the word means. But we think we use it as a disease of cartilage. It's where you lose that cartilage cap or the cartilage lining of the socket. Pain for this is typically not on the sides. It's typically in the groin. So in that crease in the front of your hip is typically where people feel hip joint pain. And that's where arthritis usually shows up. Some people will describe kind of a C sign. Like if you clamp on the side of your hip, kind of between the two fingers, that's where you feel the pain. Um, 
people get limps, you start losing range of motion, and the, the joint just starts to break down. Starts, you can think of your joint as like a road, nice smooth paved road, and over time, start getting cracks in the road, same as the cartilage can start getting cracks. Eventually, those cracks turn into potholes. Your, your joint can start getting kind of loss of chunks of cartilage. And then eventually, the road just falls apart. And that's what arthritis does. Um, there's lots of different things that can cause arthritis or cartilage loss. The most common is osteoarthritis, just means bone arthritis. Um, and this is what we, we colloquially say wear and tear. It's not really wear and tear, but that's what we kind of think of it as. You, you, you kind of, it's a disease of, of aging. Um, other ways people can get arthritis are from inflammatory conditions. This is things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, um, psoriatic arthritis, things like that, ankylosing spondylitis. Um, trauma can cause arthritis. So this gentleman had had a fracture when he was younger and kind of resulted in the plate and other things breaking down and eventually got arthritis in his hip. Infection can cause arthritis. So if you get bacteria in your hip, those bacteria cause damage to everything around it, one of which is cartilage. And so when that cartilage is gone, your body does not have a way to make it come back. And so that can lead to pretty quick arthritis. This is another common reason that people get it when they're younger, osteoarthritis or avascular necrosis. Um, that's where the bone actually dies. So it loses its blood supply and can die. And then there's childhood developmental diseases. So this gentleman is a 25-year-old who just didn't have access to medical care for a long time and was born with his hips dislocated. No one ever put them back in. Um, and so he's lived like this his whole life. Um, and then there's some people who have combinations of both. So this guy similarly had his hip out for his whole life and then got just regular osteoarthritis on the other side. Treatment for arthritis is kind of the same, similar things to what we've talked about. Anti-inflammatories, weight loss is really important for arthritis, probably the most um, helpful one. Uh, staying active is better. The cartilage is still there, likes to be moved. Uh, physical therapy injections can help as well. Um, when all that fails, that's when arthroplasty comes into play and that's the replacement of the joint with a prosthesis. So that's what I do uh, every day. Um, this is what a total hip replacement or a total hip arthroplasty looks like. Um, it's implants that go into the bone on both sides. So there's a stem that goes into the femoral bone and a socket that goes into the acetabulum. Both of those are usually made of titanium and your bone grows into them. They're porous. In between those two titanium implants, there's usually a ceramic ball and a plastic liner. Sometimes we put in ceramic liners and ceramic balls, such as in this guy in the top right, but the kind of gold standard in the U.S. is a plastic liner and a ceramic ball. And the idea is that this is going to last you the rest of your life. Um, if you have it done, the plastic is very good now. It used to be we tell you 15 years you need a change. It's not really the case anymore. Um, so luckily, these are getting really good. Sometimes this is what happened to that. This is what I did last week for that gentleman who was uh, dislocated his whole life. Sometimes you have to do things a little more complicated than just a straightforward hip but we were able to put his hip back where it belongs, kind of rebuild it with a hip replacement. Um, and he's going to get his other side in a few months. Um, total hip replacement has gotten really good. Um, we do different things now with joint recovery, um, pain management, the way that we do the surgery, um, that uh, hip replacement recovery is much different than it was 10 years ago, even five years ago. Um, and luckily people do very well. Um, it's been called the operation of the century. If you look at the quality of life improvement from anything in medicine, hip replacement is always number one and two with heart stents because heart stents, if you don't get it, you die. Hip replacement, 
if you don't get it, you're essentially, you know, that's, that's how big of a jump people get with hip replacements. Um, okay, so moving on to the next one, impingement. Um, this is something that happens during development, and it's likely a normal, you know, it's, it may be a normal variant because a lot of people have this. But what happens with impingement is you get these bony prominences that start hitting against the side of your acetabulum. Now, if anyone knows what this bone is, I'd, I'd be impressed with it. Um, this is not a human variant. This is actually a horse's femur. And the reason that I show this is just that animals that are in line have this shape to the femur. So they have this very high kind of not really around, there's no real neck. It's just kind of a ball that's merged onto the bone. And you can see in this person's femur, they're kind of getting sort of that similar thing that it's just kind of merging down on as opposed to coming down and in like the normal hip would be. Um, this happens more in active people, a lot in male athletes. Um, and the issue is that this can lead to arthritis if you start beating up the cartilage. There's two types of impingement. There's this cam and pincer impingement. Um, this is what a cam is for the engineers out there, you know, an asymmetric uh, shape that's going to take a rotational uh, rotational force and put it into a linear translation. So like in your car, there's pistons and there's a camshaft that turns the piston going up and down into the wheel spinning. Um, but this is kind of this asymmetric round shape that happens in a cam lesion. Um, and what can happen is you get this bump in the front of the femur. When your hip flexes up, that bump hits into the cartilage and the labrum on the rim, and that can start causing issues. Um, and so over time, that can start to beat up both the labrum as well as the cartilage junction underneath it. And it's probably actually that cartilage junction that's more of the problem. So that labrum is a protective ring and contributes to stability, but tears of the labrum are super common. And if you look at kind of 90% of people with this FAI or this femoral acetabular impingement have labral tears. But also if you get an MRI of everyone over 40 years old, about 70% of them, even if they have no hip pain, have labral tears. So this is kind of more of a normal aging finding. So the labral tear in of itself is not really that big of a deal. In young people, it can be a big deal. It can be from trauma, but usually this is kind of an aging thing. It's more the cartilage damage that's, that's more important. So this picture in the right here is showing the labrum torn, but also underneath it, look at the cartilage starting to delaminate. That's probably the bigger issue. People with this get pain in the joint. So it's that same groin pain C sign. Worse with prolonged sitting, actually. And this can be either from an acute injury or a chronic thing. Um, most of the time, you know, we try to treat this non-operatively. There's a growing body of literature that maybe by getting rid of that bump early, you can prevent cartilage degeneration. And so hip arthroscopy or scoping or going in with cameras is becoming more frequent. Um, what they do is they take that bump down. That's called an osteochondroplasty, osteobone chondrocartilage, taking that down and then also repairing the labrum. Um, younger patients do better with that surgery thinner patients who aren't overweight, people with no arthritis, tonus grade is an uh, arthritis grading system. So if you have arthritis, if you're older, if you're overweight, um, those are kind of predictors that there may be things going on already that the cat's already out of the bag. 
And again, this is very, very common, especially in high-level athletes. So it begs the question of, is this really an abnormal thing or is this more compensatory that as these people were doing all these sports growing up, that their femur had to somehow remodel to be able to deal with the stress that's happening? Um, Or have they had an injury when they're younger where there's an injury to the growth plate and that's changed it? And we don't really know the reason. We just know that a lot of high-level athletes, especially football, soccer, hockey, those are the ones that, that people get it a lot. So that's impingement. Next one, referred pain. So referred pain is a big category, which just means hip pain not coming from the hip. Um, So the most common place it might be coming from is the spine. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in your spine, but nerves getting pinched is one that's pretty common, uh, either from a disc bulge or from arthritis as the joints kind of collapse down, they pinch around the nerves. Um, or if you start having slippage of the joints, they can start pinching on the nerves um, or tightening arthritis around the joints that can cause uh, pinching on the nerves. All those things can cause hip pain. If you pinch the nerve that goes to your hip, your brain thinks that your hip is hurting, right? So anywhere along that track, if that nerve to your hip gets pinched, your brain reads it as your hip is hurting. So even though it's your back that's having the problem, your brain keeps thinking there's something wrong with your hip. This happens more in older patients. A lot of times the pain is more in the back of the hip, radiating down the leg. Um, Any pain that goes down past the knee, even if it starts in your hip, is not coming from your hip. That's coming from somewhere else. Um, This is treated more with therapy and then treatment of whatever the underlying spinal condition is. A lot of times we'll use steroid injections to kind of try and calm down the nerve. And that helps both treat the pain, but it also tells us, is this where the pain's coming from? Is it coming from around the spine? can be very difficult sometimes to tell if someone's having pain from hip arthritis or from hip joint pathology like arthritis or from their back. A lot of people will have really bad looking hip x-rays, but that's not the reason that they're having pain. It might be coming from the spine. Um, Another one that a lot of people kind of bring up is what's called piriformis syndrome. Now, piriformis syndrome, the true piriformis syndrome is incredibly rare. It's when you're getting pinching of your sciatic nerve from the piriformis muscle. Okay, the piriformis is one of the small external rotators of the hip. Sometimes you can develop that the nerve actually goes through the muscle. And so if the muscle gets really big and strong and you're kind of contracting it all the time, it can pinch on the nerve. Or people sometimes have a nerve that goes around the muscle and splits. And so as the muscle's kind of moving, it can pinch on the nerve. That's really uncommon. You get, you get symptoms more like sciatica, so pain going down the leg. Colloquially, though, people, therapists especially, like to call any kind of pain around that kind of posterior area, the back of the hip, they like to call that piriformis pain. Probably not the piriformis that's the issue, but it is one of the muscles over there. Sure, it could be involved, but probably more likely it's a combination of multiple muscles um, and other things going on around the hip. A lot of times it's arthritis. A lot of times it's labral issues. A lot of times it's SI joint, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the piriformis is a pretty small and wimpy muscle. And for about 40 years of doing hip replacements, the piriformis was cut, never repaired. People did really well. So the piriformis is probably not the, the biggest problem. Um, Okay, and so the last thing in stairs is going to be the SI joint or sacroiliac joint. Now, the sacroiliac joint is the connection between your ilium and the sacrum. Okay, we're we're really not that, um, you know, uh, we don't have that good of an imagination in medicine. We just kind of name things that go next to each other, right? Sacroiliac joint. Um, This is something that can be acute pain or chronic pain. 
Um, chronically, this is more of an arthritis issue. So it can be from old trauma or from inflammatory type arthritis. Um, more acutely, some people can get it like around pregnancy. This is a pretty common place to get back pain is actually a lot of times your SI joint. A lot of the hormones from pregnancy loosen up your ligaments. And so this joint, which is normally, I, I put joint in kind of quotations because it's a joint that's really tight. It doesn't really move much at all. It gives a little bit of flex, but that's about it. Um, but if it starts loosening up, like when you have all the pregnancy hormones so that you can fit the baby out, it can start getting a little more sloppy and loose, and then it can start causing pain. This pain is usually generally in the back and the upper buttock, kind of right where this is. And you can generally, you can a lot of times push on it and start to make it hurt again, similar to that trochanter pain on the side. Um, this can be a really sharp pain. People talk about like getting stabbed with a hot poker or something like right there. Um, and this can be pretty uncomfortable. Usually this goes away. It's kind of self-limited. You can kind of give it conservative stuff to help it make it feel better. Um, sometimes if it's refractory, we can inject steroid into that tight joint. Really rarely you can do what was done in the bottom here and fuse the joint or kind of lock it together um, so it doesn't move anymore. So those are, we kind of made it up the stairs. Um, we talked about strains, trochanter, arthritis, impingement, um, referred pain, and then SI joint pain. There's a couple more though that I just want to make sure just for kind of completeness sake, this is by no means everything, but I just want to make sure we get all the big ones that people kind of can, can come across. Um, one is dysplasia, which I mentioned before. Dysplasia meaning just an abnormal development. And so dysplasia of the hip is something that's pretty common. It's screened for in every baby um, in the U.S. Um, but if it's missed, it can be pretty devastating. So if you look at this picture in the top left here, this guy's hips never developed in the socket, walks with a limb, probably will never walk totally normal again, but we're going to try and get him there. Now, dysplasia is a spectrum. So if you look at this patient down below him, this is also dysplasia, just a much milder form. And what dysplasia means is just the socket never fully developed. So if you look at, um, say, the other side, for example, you see how the socket covers the ball a little bit more than this side. This side is almost 50% uncovered. Um, and so that socket never really got deep enough. And when that happens, the ball is putting more stress on the edge of that acetabulum, the edge of the joint, and can lead to earlier arthritis. And a lot of times these mild dysplasia patients account for about half of the patients who need a hip replacement before 50. The other half of those patients who need a hip replacement before 50 is often from that femoral acetabulum impingement, the cam lesion bashing against it. Um, those are people that get osteoarthritis or kind of wear and tear type arthritis before 50. The most common reason people get it under that age is actually for avascular necrosis. Um, but some things can be done for that dysplasia. We can kind of move the bone and shift that socket to cover it a little bit better. That's something that's done by Dr. Diab uh, with the pediatrics group. And then there's other things that can happen. Like this is called Perthes disease. Uh, it's like avascular necrosis where the bone dies, but just in a child. Other things that can happen around the hip are obviously fractures from trauma. We didn't really cover that, but this is a hip stress fracture. This can happen from overtraining, start getting pain in the hip joint. So groin, right? Groin is hip joint, usually with weight bearing activities after kind of picking up. So like I was training for a marathon and then started getting this hip pain. The treatment is to rest and let it heal. Um, and then the other thing would be a hip pointer injury. So this is kind of what people call if you get smacked right on the side of the hip with direct trauma. And this isn't the hip joint, but it's up on that iliac crest. Okay, so where this guy's got a bruise is where his iliac crest is. 
it's not as hip technically, but that's what we call a hip pointer. Um, that's just kind of a shearing of a lot of the tissues there. It will heal with time, just rest, um, not a, not a surgical problem. Now, how do we tell the difference between all of these different hip problems? Um, these are kind of the three major categories of how we kind of break them down, but chronicity. So how long has it been hurting? Did it come on when you were playing tennis and you stretch too far and then you got pain here, or has it been something that's kind of been insidious over the, you know, last 10 years, slowly building, you've kind of lost some of your motion, you know, pointing you more towards arthritis. Other things like mechanism of injury, how did it happen can tell us a lot sometimes. Um, and then the last thing would be location. So where is that hip hurting? You know, that's something we talked about with each one of these, but if it's in the anterior and the groin or kind of more that C shape where people talk about deep pain kind of between my fingers, if I'm clamping on my hip, um, that we think more intra-articular inside the joint, um, that would be maybe arthritis or femoral acetabular impingement, or it could be something like a, a flexor muscle strain. So your psoas could have gotten injured. If it's more lateral or on the outside of the hip over here, then we think more about trochanteric pathology or snapping hip, IT band. And then if it's more in the buttock or posterior, we think more of the SI joint or hamstring injury or referred pain coming from the back. Now, a lot of times we're not that good. I could get a two-hour history from you. You could do every exam maneuver ever described, and I may not still be able to figure out what is exactly causing your pain with 100% certainty. And that's where injections often come in. And this isn't necessarily with steroids. Sometimes we'll just use lidocaine and we'll try to numb an area that we think the problem is at. And if your pain goes away, that's a pretty good predictor. So if we think you're having trochanteric bursitis and we inject your trochanteric bursa, pain goes away. Perfect. That's where we need to target treatment. If that doesn't work, then sometimes we have to do these more invasive injections like into the hip joint or into the SI joint or into the lumbar spine. And a lot of these are done with ultrasound or uh, fluoroscopy um, and are not done in the office. They have to be done kind of under uh, more controlled conditions. But um, these are some of the ways that we have to go to figure out exactly what the problem is coming from. And sometimes people have multiple things going on at once. And, you know, the hip bone is definitely connected to the spine bone. So, you know, they definitely affect each other. If one's out of whack, they can all get out of whack. Um, luckily, though, a lot of these diagnoses, the treatment kind of comes down to the same path, which would be, you know, changing the activities, maybe lower impact things for a little while, icing around the hip, anti-inflammatory drugs, um, physical therapy, working a lot on core strength a lot of times and kind of getting back in balance, getting rid of any kind of uh, gait mechanic issues, stretching, um, and then injections like we talked about. And luckily, most of these things, surgery is not needed, um, or if it is, it's way down the line after a lot of people have gotten much better from conservative treatment options. So um, we went over the hip joint a little bit. Um, we broke down the most con common contributors to hip pain, going through the stairs algorithm and then kind of differentiated between them a little bit. Um, and so that was about 45 minutes. And now, you know, we wanted to leave a good amount of time to answer questions. I think that's a, a great way to uh, maybe get at what you guys would like to know. So we have a um, question from uh, Dr. Cindy Chang, who's going to be one of our other speakers later on in our series. Dr. Chang wants to know, can you explain the partial hip replacement and resurfacing and how, how do you decide? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Dr. Chang. Thanks for throwing the easy ones. No. 
Um, so the, uh, a partial hip replacement is something called the hemiarthroplasty. You may have heard of that. That is historically used more frequently for older individuals who have a fall and break their hip. So with a partial hip replacement, we're not replacing their socket. Um, we're just replacing the ball side. Okay. So it's your own socket and your own cartilage in the socket. The reason that's done is a lot of times older individuals, if you know, we're talking much older, late eighties, you know, nineties, sometimes when they fall and break their hip, we're just trying to get them to be able to get up again so they can start moving, get their pain better. Um, they don't always have a lot of arthritis in the hip and we want the surgery to be very expeditious and not very stressful on their body. So we're only doing that partial hip replacement. Most of the time, that partial hip replacement is not done for more chronic conditions like arthritis, things like that. If you're active enough to need a hip replacement um, or you're getting enough hip pain that you can't do the things that you want to do and you're healthy enough to get a hip replacement, usually you're going to get that full hip replacement of both sides. Now, there is this kind of in-between thing called a hip resurfacing. Um, a hip resurfacing is just it's a ball and socket, but the ball is just on the very end of the femur. It's not going into the femur bone like those pictures I showed. Um, so you, you hear like Isaiah Thomas had that in the NBA and Andy Murray, the tennis player, had that done, a hip resurfacing. That was more, you know, the theoretic benefits of that were that it may last forever uh, and may be a higher functioning hip. I would say most people in the U.S. have kind of debunked that. Um, and it's actually more invasive to do that procedure. It takes a bigger dissection. We have to take down more muscles to do that. And the fixation in your bone is less biologic. So it's cemented onto the end of your bone. It's probably not going to last as long as those implants where it grows into your bone. Now, the reason people do it is that it's a metal ball and a metal socket. And theoretically, that may never wear out like the plastic would. The downside, though, is that metal touching metal can sometimes cause issues. And so there's only a few implants left on the market that didn't have these terrible outcomes with the metal releasing these ions and causing a lot of damage to tissues. So hip resurfacing is a much less common procedure now. There are still a few people who do it in young, big men, um, because those are the ones that didn't have metal issues. And, and may be able to get some benefit over the plastic. But I would say most hip replacement surgeons nowadays would say that the plastic it does really, really well. And the way we do hip replacements is so minimally invasive that you should be able to get back to most anything without any restrictions afterwards. Got it. Um, a question from me. Um, so I, as you mentioned, Jeff, I, I see a lot of, uh, you know, foot and ankle deformities or patients so oftentimes I get asked, you know, you know, I, a patient will come in, they'll say, I have a, you know, knee arthritis and I have hip arthritis, but I also have ankle arthritis, um, which, which one should I do first? And so my answer is usually, well, whichever hurts the most is the one that you should do. Um, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, do you know, are, you know, are there studies out there? Um, what, 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 what kind of insight would you give yeah. to patients? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I don't have a lot of insight for like, combining with all of these together. But I can say that within, within the, you know, arthroplasty being hip and knee literature, there's a lot of people who have hip and knee problems, um, for example. And it's pretty clear that we recommend doing the hip replacement first. And that's for a couple reasons. Number one is that knee pain can a lot of times be coming from your hip. So you can feel, especially on the inside of your knee pain, 
may not actually be coming from your knee. It may be from hip pathology. And so a lot of times, even directly, that knee pain will get better after a hip replacement. And if not, secondarily, when you get able to stand up straighter, when you're able to walk more, normally, a lot of times, mild to moderate knee arthritis will get better after a hip replacement. The second reason for doing the hip first is the hip is a lot easier of a recovery to do than a knee replacement. And so getting through the hip replacement recovery is generally much it's it's a it's a walk in the park compared to a knee and so it's it's much easier to just get that done out of the way and then if the knee is still bothering you come back and do the the harder knee replacement now if you add things in like spine problems if you add things in like ankle issues comes a little bit more of a discussion of kind of it's an individual based decision. Um, but in general, I would kind of shoot for the easier one first, because a lot of times you do the easier recovery first, because a lot of times you do get benefit of those other joints after you, you fix the, the most broken part of the, the kind of chain. Got it. Yeah. It's, it sounds like both the hip and the knee are way easier recovery than the ankle <laughs> replacements. Yeah. Um, all right, so we have another question. It says, um, after a total ankle or total ankle, total hip replacement surgery, can there ever be a situation where the patient has constant pain due to scar tissue forming around the prosthesis? And if so, is there ever a situation where a total hip replacement might need to be redone? Yeah, so um, I'm going to kind of take the second part of that question because it's a little, little bit uh, more general, but. So about a third of my practice is actually redoing hip and knee replacements. Not my own, luckily, but other people, you know, come in with problems with their joint replacements. And so we have to fix them. So at a tertiary care center like UCSF, we, we take pride in kind of being able to take care of anything and any, any, anyone, any problem that happens with a hip or knee replacement. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Luckily, they're very uncommon. Um, the most common things that can happen are the, are the most problematic things that can happen, I should say, would be things like infection or instability where the ball is coming out of the socket um, or fractures around the hip replacement um, or wear. So older plastic, you know, coming in from 20 years ago before we had the newer stuff, the older plastic would wear out. And so you'd have to deal with the consequences of that. Now, there are people that get scar tissue around the hip. Um, I would say that having a like a stiff hip is not something we think of so much as we do around like knees. You know, people who get stiff knees, that's a bigger problem. It happens around the hip, but generally people, it's, it's not quite as, as common of an issue. There's a lot of reasons that you can have pain though. And so I would say that if someone's told that you're having pain because of scar tissue around your hip, I, I dig a little bit deeper and I'd want to know a little bit more. Um, but, but there are a lot of reasons that hips need to be redone. Got it. Uh, we have uh, someone else who wants to know your thoughts on yoga. So yeah. if you have a patient who practices yoga after a hip replacement, say, do you, it, is that a good thing? Can, can they still go back to practicing yoga? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think yoga is great. Pilates, all those things are, are wonderful. Anything that's getting you active and moving is, is, is fantastic. Now, yoga has some, some things that are important around a hip replacement, um, yoga gets you in some interesting positions, right? There are some extreme positions, especially for these kind of very advanced yoga practitioners. Um, in general, if you have bad enough arthritis to need a hip replacement, you're probably not getting in those positions to begin with. But if you, if you are still very flexible and happen to have bad enough arthritis to get a replacement, usually what we'll say is for a few months while the tissues are healing, kind of taking it easy, letting things scar and get tight again. And then you can go back to pretty much any activities. 
Um, I'll sometimes tell people certain positions they're, they're good to avoid, but depends on the type of hip replacement you've had. But in general, yoga people, you don't usually hear about people who are practicing yoga then coming back and having a dislocated hip. And the reason is that people who do yoga are very much in tune with kind of where their body is in space and they have a much more, a much better sense of what their muscles are doing and what they're feeling around their body. And you generally know, hey, this isn't feeling right. And you back off before you get into a dangerous position. So yoga is great. Do it before, after uh, hip replacement, no problem. Great. Um, so another question uh, is, how do you know when is the right time for a hip replacement? Um, should people try to wait it out or do it, do it sooner rather than later, um, say for someone who's in their you know, mid-70s? Yeah. Um, so this is a question we get asked all the time, right? So I'm in a hip replacement office. People always come in like, when do I, when should I do this? When do I do this? So there's two kind of things that you have to meet to need a hip replacement. Number one is you have to have arthritis or you have to have an issue in the joint that's going to get better with a hip replacement. Okay. Um, so that's usually on radiographs and kind of exam, things like that, that we, we determine that. And that's usually kind of an objective thing. The subjective thing is more the clinically, how is this affecting your quality of life? So when your hip is the reason that you can't do the things that you want to do and your quality of life is suffering to the degree that you just are not happy with what things are, are, are going for you, then it's time for the hip replacement. And so, or then it's time to consider the hip replacement, I should say. Um, hip replacement is always elective. Um, I would never tell someone you have to have a hip replacement because it's always your decision. It's not a life or death decision. It's a quality of life decision. So only you can tell me when you're ready for it. Um, I would say that a lot of people worry like, well, if I don't do it now, I'm going to be too old or I won't be able to have it done. I would say that's not really the case. Um, if you're still out moving around, you're still active, you're still doing the things that you enjoy, you're still healthy enough to have the hip replacement. We're doing this in people in their mid to late 80s routinely, even in their 90s sometimes. So, you know, mid 70s, I would say if you're still able to do the things you love and enjoy and your, your pain is tolerable, keep doing it. And when you can't, we're here for you. Right. Um, and then also a follow-up question to that from the same person is, does having a significant osteoporosis make a hip replacement more difficult? Um, it does not. I mean, it, it, it makes you a little bit of a higher risk for things like fractures. But at the same time, you have to remember that the people getting hip replacements are generally the people with osteoporosis. So these implants are designed for, for kind of softer bone, poorer bone. Um, we often make decisions in the surgery that can change the implants that we use based on your bone. So if your bone is very soft, then we can use cement to kind of bond it into the bone. So just today, for example, I did a, a patient who was 84 and she had softer bone. So we cemented her hip replacement in. She's going to do just as well. She will not be able to tell a difference between cemented or press fit. And her bone is going to accept that implant just fine. Um, and she'll be able to do all the things that she wants to do right off the bat. So osteoporosis is kind of, I wouldn't say the norm, but it's very common and something that we're used to dealing with and, and is uh, a part of what we do. Great. And then can you also elaborate a little bit about what the typical recovery after a total hip is? When can patients start walking? When can they, um, you know, start doing some higher impact activities? What, what is that like for a patient? Yeah. So hip replacement, um, the way it's done is you generally come into the hospital, you have the surgery, um, you're up walking the same day. You can put your full weight on the leg right off the bat. 
Um, you can go home the same day. Most people here at UCSF stay the night overnight just because it's, it's easier for patients. But usually you're going home the next day. You're walking. You usually use a walker for one to two weeks. I would say that's the average of, of using a walker. And then you're back to a cane or, or eventually off assisted devices. The first three to four weeks are kind of the most uh, most kind of intense um, and it just has to do with, we've done a big surgery, we've gone around the muscles, cut the bone, we put these things in and things have to heal a little bit. So it takes some time for the biology to catch up and do those things. But in general, people notice a difference in their pain pretty much right off the bat. You're trading that deep arthritis pain for um, more of a surgical pain, muscle pain that gets better day by day. Um, we also use a lot of different medications at kind of low doses to kind of help you get through it um, and not have to need a lot of those stronger opioid medicines to the point that a lot of people by kind of four weeks are walking, no limp, no assistive device, not taking any medications anymore. They're still having some pain, but uh, in general, they're, they're much better than where they started off. The full recovery takes about a three to four month period for the hip replacement. Some people longer, some people shorter. It's all depends on where you're starting and, and kind of how things have gone. But that, that would I, what I would say is kind of the, the average time I would say someone who is uh, working needs to take off kind of in that three to four months for a more upright kind of on your feet type of job. Now, people after hip replacements, again, eventually get to the point that a lot of times they forget they've even had it. So it's not uncommon for patients to come back for their yearly follow-up, say, I was in the airport and got in a fight with TSA because they were telling me I had metal on me. And I was like, I don't have metal on me. And they're like, you have metal on you. And like, oh my gosh, I had a hip replacement. I totally forgot. So that is not an uncommon um, thing that happens with hips. Um, knees are a little bit different. I imagine ankles are a little bit different. Shoulders are a little bit different. People always kind of know they've had those, but a good functioning hip replacement can sometimes get to the point that you never, never really, there's times where you forget you've had. Two people who asked this question, is there a way that we can slow or prevent the wear of cartilage since we can't really reproduce it? How, how can we change our lives or is there some way we can uh, so that we can slow down that wear. Yeah, so that is a really good question. And the the short answer is, I don't know. Um, but I will tell you that there are ways that we kind of think may help. Um, the biggest one is weight control. So um, obesity is probably the number one reason why people get arthritis, especially the knees, but also the hips. We know that as your weight goes up, the chance of you getting arthritis goes up. So if you're able to lose weight, stay in a healthy weight range, that is the number one way to avoid getting arthritis in the future. Um, The other thing that I would say is being active. Um, So activity is the way that cartilage gets its nourishment. So we know that if you have some arthritis, and you are active, your chances of being symptomatic are less than if you're someone who has arthritis and you're inactive. So if you go from being, you know, walking, you know, two, three miles a day, you have kind of moderate arthritis, you're not symptomatic, to then you go sit on your couch for a few months, you will start to get symptomatic arthritis. And so we know that the cartilage that is there likes to be moved, likes to stay loose, likes to stay kind of uh, lubricated. That's how it gets its, its, its nutrients is through the fluid around the joint. It needs to be pushing on the cartilage and squeezing that fluid and squeezing all those juices into the cartilage to get it, get it healthy and active. Um, I don't, there's no pill for you to take. There's not like a supplement that we know of. There's not like, you know, these antioxidant diets and things. We don't know that that's going to make a big difference. Um, 
I will say things like glucosamine and chondroitin, which are often sold as joint joint pills, um, do not make a difference over placebo. Um, so I would not recommend those. And those are actually not recommended by the Academy of Orthopedics and things. We, we kind of would, would advise against those sorts of, uh, of things or those sorts of claims. Um, but in general, being active, keeping your weight down is probably the, the two most um, helpful ways to keep your cartilage healthy. Are there any specific, um, oh, we have another person asking, is there any specific stretching or exercises that you'd recommend, you know, whereas like for bone, it's more weight, you know, weight bearing exercises, but for cartilage and the hip and the knee joint, yeah. it, it, does it make a difference? Yeah. So I think that the ways that a lot of times we recommend that people activity modification. And, and what that means is that if you're starting to get some symptoms or you have some predisposition to getting arthritis, say you have mild dysplasia or say you're someone who we know has FAI, um, you're, you're prone to impingement. Um, there are certain activities that are going to be better for a joint than others. And so that's things like bicycle, um, swimming, um, elliptical, those types of activities are better for you than kind of running on uneven ground or doing stairs or, you know, kind of plyometric type jumping things. Now that's not to say don't do those if those are what you enjoy. And that's why you like to get your activity in by all means do that. But if you're starting to have hip symptoms or you're starting to have knee symptoms, then starting to do, um, kind of lower impact activities may be the way to go. And a lot of people can have terrible hip arthritis, and they can still bike for 100 miles in a sitting. So um, there, there's a big difference in the stresses that go on a joint when you have your foot planted all the time and you're not putting full body weight through it. So, so those are activities that I would say are better. In terms of stretching, there's not a particular stretch. I would say that everyone's anatomy is different. So don't push to pain. So a lot of times you'll see like in a yoga class, they'll be doing these hip moves. And there's certain moves that your bony anatomy may not let you do, especially men who have been kind of athletes when they were younger. I, for example, cannot internally rotate my hip at all. I don't, I can't do some of those stretches. So don't push to the point that it's hurting to try and do the stretch because what you're doing is you're probably pushing that bone against the labrum and you're just, you're doing exactly what that video was doing, kind of pounding on the edge. So I'd say stretch to a point of kind of feeling the muscle pull, but don't push through pain. Um, and, and that's kind of a, a good advice for any, any joint. All right. Well, thank you everyone so much for um, joining us this evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.